you seem to be a very very busy person um and it's almost like where do we start um going into this but let's start with your book okay let's start with your book um which looks awesome about your feral dog coming in from the wild can you kind of give us a rundown of what that's about yes i've actually written 30 books but um charlie is the most recent dog book to have been published um it's called charlie the dog who came in from the wild and it's about a romanian feral dog a one-eyed romanian feral dog who came to me well almost three years ago now he was with me for two years and two months he arrived as a foster dog and was absolutely terrified of everything and i realized very quickly that he wasn't going to be like any of my other fosters or any of the other dogs who I've adopted. And, and I tend to specialise in very fearful dogs and very traumatised dogs. But Charlie really was. He was like a wild creature, basically. Um, very wolf-like in his behaviour. He'd had um, minimal, really no close contact with humans. We thought when he first arrived that he was 19 months old because of the date on his pet passport. But in fact... It turned out he was quite a bit older. When I researched what had been going on with him, with his rescuer in Romania, um, he must have been probably three to four when he came to me. And, of course, during that time, he'd probably been born in the wild. Um, he'd lived wild all his life in these fields in Romania. And no human contact, just hung out with his own little group. And one dog in particular called Lenny, who ended up um, being captured alongside Charlie, who then was brought over to the UK and is doing well now. Um, so Charlie was extraordinarily fearful. He had no experience of even things like a food bowl and water bowl. So, so it was quite, quite an incredible experience looking after him. He was a beautiful, beautiful dog. I felt desperately sorry for him when he first arrived because he found everything so difficult. He was literally paralyzed with fear when he first came to me. Um, and I realized very quickly that you know, he hadn't been socialised at all. He coped very well with Sky, with my lurcher, uh, because he was used to canine company rather than human company. But anything to do with living in a home, he found absolutely terrifying. And so I had to put um, a lot of procedures in place that everybody in the home and anybody coming into the home, which I kept minimal for quite some time, um, had to move very slowly, speak softly, had to be very aware of how everything affected him, how our body language even affected him. So it was quite incredible. And then I contacted, um, I emailed Mark Beckoff not long after Charlie came when I found out more about his background and realised he was actually a feral dog rather than a street dog. And... Um, said to Mark, I know that you've written quite a few papers about the feralization of domestic dogs, but do you have any papers or do you know of any papers, because I can't find them, on the domestication of feral dogs the other way around, how to help them adjust to life in a home? And, and he emailed back and and said, well, no, actually, because it's not been done yet. It's being done at the moment um, in Italy, in Turin. There's a study taking place with a dog called Parsifal, um, and Mark had been over to meet him. And as with Charlie, he said that if Parsifal had appeared more husky-like, he would have been convinced that he was 90% wolf um, rather than dog and um, because of his behaviour. So... Mark sent me over the papers that he'd written with Thomas Daniels, who was at that time um, working with him. And it was really interesting. He'd done a great deal of research into the feralization of domestic dogs, how they adjusted to life in the wild, but also how different they are after a few generations of living wild to our domestic dogs. So, for instance, even things like... Um, in, in heat, our dogs are very promiscuous. Um, feral dogs will only mate with dogs that they know from the vicinity, from the areas around them. They have a very small range, um, surprisingly small, and um, they're extremely hostile towards any dogs who come into their territory. Um, so 
it's very, very interesting, their, their kind of range habits, their mating habits, their um, eating habits. Charlie was a very good hunter. He'd obviously fended for himself extremely well all of his life. He was a bit underweight when he came to me, but he wasn't emaciated like some of the foster dogs who've come to me. Um, so with him, really, it was his extreme fear issues, which I worked with very successfully. And he gathered confidence. By the time he'd been with us around seven months, he was very confident at that point. And um, it actually went in the other direction. He, he came up with lots of aggression issues at that point towards everybody. It was generalized aggression, um, including us. And he was actually quite dangerous to be around for a while. So... So I worked with him with that and I called in Team Charlie who was a wonderful group of people. Sarah Fisher um, was Charlie's angel as we still call her huh. um, and so uh, which yeah, she was and she, she now in fact Charlie died last April very suddenly and, and Sarah still calls Charlie her ongoing educator which means that you know basically even after he's passed away his story is still teaching people, you know, telling people how to work with feral dogs, how to help them adjust to life in a home. Um, my vet and another vet was concerned. Um, we didn't have him on drugs or anything. I didn't want him put on drugs, but he did have silking for a short while. He had um, homeopathy, zoopharmacognosy. I used Barch flower remedies on him because I use them a lot with dogs. Um, he had tea touch so basically we just brought all of these different methods together complementary therapies together and worked with him and and it was successful you know he adjusted eventually and he became the most wonderful fun loving mischievous dog that you can possibly imagine he was just great to be around and I've still got these beautiful memories. There's a photo on the book cover, which is my favourite photo of him, where he's leaping in the air with this huge grin on his face. And, um, and that was Charlie. That's how I remember him most of all. Um, so he was quite a challenge, but he was also amazing to work with. He taught me so much because in years and years of working with dogs with extreme fear issues, particularly working with dogs um, who'd never lived in a home, not necessarily street dogs, although I have worked with quite a few now, um, but ex-racing greyhounds who have come straight from the tracks to stay with me. But with Charlie, it was a different thing altogether you know he really was a very unusual soul and he developed into this fabulous character who I had an extraordinary bond with so when he died I was absolutely devastated it was very sudden um, he became unwell in the February and then picked up he had lots of blood tests done and everything and, and they showed there could be some problems with the liver and then he picked up and then he went downhill very, very fast and we booked him in for an MRI scan. And the morning that he was due to have the scan, my vet came with the ambulance to take him because he was still nervous of cars. That was one thing that he found very difficult. It's the last thing I was working with, with him. And, um, and he collapsed just after she arrived and stopped breathing and she revived him and we got him to the hospital and he had the scan but you know we couldn't save him basically so it was it was very sudden and absolutely devastating and I still get really upset you know thinking about it I still miss him a lot even though it's almost a year it was the 27th of April so it's 11 months ago um he was a huge, huge character, but what I was hoping with the book was that it would help other people with extremely fearful dogs, dogs with extreme aggression issues, and dogs who hadn't lived in a home before. And, and the feedback that I've had has been wonderful. I hadn't intended to write a book when Charlie first came to me and when I adopted him, but I kept notes of the work that I was doing with him, of his progress, and... It just came to a point where 
I thought, actually, this would be really useful for people as a book, and it's great for me to write it down and have a really good record of life with Charlie. And um, my literary agent was very keen, and it got taken on by Hubble and Hattie Publishers straight away when she sent it out. And um, so it's it's been great. We've had I've had lots of really good feedback from readers. Um, who've taken in Romanian dogs, street dogs from other countries as well, but also who have dogs who were born in this country but who have a lot of fear issues. So it's been very encouraging to think that Charlie's story has actually made a difference to other dogs. It certainly seems to have been really well received. I was looking at the reviews and he, um, and you mentioned earlier about how photogenic he was in that photo. I mean, I, I saw a few photos of him. He was certainly a really beautiful dog. How do you feel, having gone through the process, about the domestication of feral dogs? Do you think that is something that should be undertaken? Or, I mean, I've heard people make the argument that some dogs, particularly very feral dogs, are almost so unset up to live in a home that they are and it sounds cruel, almost better off just living the life um, in a feral way. How do you feel about that argument? I agree. Um, I think in some cases it's actually cruel to bring these dogs into the home. I mean, it's something that I did mention in the book and said, you know, we have to look at the dog's welfare. That has to be paramount. And... If Charlie had been with somebody who wasn't as experienced in working with dogs, then it would have been disastrous. And I've heard of quite a few cases where it has been disastrous, where dogs have been sent over and gone into inexperienced homes. And it's been dreadful for the dog and dreadful for the people. And quite a few of these dogs have ended up in rescue, unrehomable. So basically kenneled for the rest of their lives, which I think is tragic. So... One thing that um, came through looking after Charlie was that I set up the Dog Welfare Alliance. He was instrumental in me making the decision to do that. Um, and I support organisations like Animal Spay Neuter International, um, which is a wonderful organisation that is based in Romania but actually travels all around the world. Um, it was founded by a lady called Nancy James in America, wonderful woman. Um, and the medical director is Aurelian Stefan, who is just fabulous. And they do spay new to programs for free. They raise funds, they go out, they've got um, Hope, this big ambulance bus that they take to all of these remote places. And they do spay new programs they give free medical care for the people who live in those areas with no access to a vet but also with the street and feral dogs in those areas and and I think that you know generally some of these dogs are homeable want to bond with people are going to settle with the right kind of care but some of them will never ever settle in you know I've I've come across dogs who've been in a home for two years even more, in one case, four years, who have never been comfortable in the home, who basically spend most of their lives in the garden, who won't join their carers in the living room. You can only imagine how sad that must be for the dog and also for the people that they've taken in a dog thinking, I have this companion who you know, I can live alongside and do things with. And, and in fact, it's, it doesn't work out that way at all. They end up with a dog who is just too scared to be able to cope. So I think it is a welfare issue and we do have to look at the five freedoms and think, okay, are all of the dog's needs being met? And if it's going to be possible to meet the dog's needs and certainly with a lot of street dogs it is because they're already socialised with people, some of them have been born in a home and have then been thrown out onto the streets or been lost, you know, whatever reason they've ended up homeless and some of those dogs actually are desperate to connect with people and to live in a home and one of my friends has a street dog from Romania who's been with her for a few years now and, and this little dog gorgeous little soul she was following people around in the streets she was 
desperately trying to go home with anyone who would take her and looking really disconsolate when people walked away from her and so the rescuer took her in she went to live with my friend she was brought over here and she's adjusted perfectly she's an incredibly well-balanced little dog so in some cases it's fine but as I said there's a big difference between street dogs and feral dogs and a lot of people who take in feral dogs have got no idea of how much work's going to be involved and how much of a challenge it's going to be and may not ultimately have ever have the relationship with that dog that they're hoping for. And certainly I know with Charlie that I was told numerous times by other professionals that if, if he'd gone into a non-professional home he probably wouldn't have lasted two weeks and certainly when he went through his aggressive phase um he wouldn't have gone through he wouldn't have got through that you know he was dangerous mm-hmm. at that point so so i think yes you have to kind of take it on an individual basis but you really have to look at whether the dog is going to be able to cope and if they're not then spay neuter and release is far kinder Sure. How can how can we ensure then that people are taking the right dogs that will be able to bounce back in in a home environment? That is really difficult because we can't be sure. We can't ever be sure, really, because especially with dogs being sent over from overseas, they're in they're taken into these massive shelters, thrown in with lots of other dogs. Um, quality of care is extremely poor in some cases it's non-existent and so there's no way to assess them you certainly can't assess what they'd be like in a home you can't assess what they'd be like with children for instance so it's it's very difficult to know and I think this is what's caused a lot of problems with some of the dogs who've been imported is that there hasn't been a way to assess them and then when they have come over and they haven't been able to cope they've ended up being relinquished to another rescue because very often there isn't any backup if they come over through um, a rescue that's based in the UK or that has people in the UK then at least you know you have rescue backup hopefully they would go into foster care first so that you could do an assessment but very Mm -hmm. often they're just sent over people pick them up from the pick-off pick-up points and that's it they're in a home and there's no backup for the people quite often too so it's very very difficult situation i mean and once they've been imported surely i mean that's it then you know there's i'm assuming that there's never any chance of taking them back and then re-releasing them you know once they're in the country that's that's kind of it you you kind of survive or you don't yeah in a way yeah i've only heard of a dog being taken back um once in the past few years so yeah usually they stay here um they if they're relinquished then they get relinquished to a uk rescue and it's something that a lot of the rescues that i work with find very difficult because you know they're already overstretched with the amount of dogs in pounds um so it's a very hard situation so given everything to, i mean given all that we spoke about do you, do you feel like we should be importing dogs from other countries i think a dog wherever he or she comes from if they can cope with being in a home then they need a home so i'm not against importation per se um, however there's the numbers are really quite shocking um i did a webinar a while ago about street dogs and feral dogs a public webinar that was recorded that you can find on youtube um and defra had just released their figures and i think it was something like 96,000 dogs had been imported last year which is a shocking number of dogs um of those just over 30,000 had come from eastern europe um so probably quite a few of those would have been feral dogs when you think about how overstretched our rescues are um, how full our pounds are and how many dogs are put to sleep each year it's really tragic so i'm not against importation at all because and certainly charlie 
enriched my life beyond measure. Um, so there's no way that I would ever have wanted to not have had him living with me and not have adopted him. But I think certainly there needs to be some kind of... Um, boundary put in place as far as numbers are concerned because what happens if you get 10,000 dogs out of the 30,000 from Eastern Europe who turn out not being able to cope in a home how are the rescues bearing the burden oh, okay so is that then a case of numbers or is that a case of trying to create a system where we get less dogs that aren't going to be aren't, aren't going to not cope with being in a home I think, that sense. Yeah, I, I think both, really. It's so difficult to know whether they're going to be able to cope in a home anyway. You don't know that until they actually arrive. With the numbers, I, I did find them really worrying that the, the numbers are actually so high. And I do wish that there'd be some kind of restriction on that, really. I know that some people might not agree with me and will think that, you know, that's a really cruel thing to say. But Ultimately, I think that spay-neuter programs, spay-neuter and release for dogs who won't be able to cope in a home is really the way forward. Um, it's kinder, generally, on the dogs. There are a lot of people that are opposed to importing foreign dogs at all um, because of the amount of dogs that we have in this country that are looking for homes. How... Well, I mean, I guess you, in some ways you've already said how you feel about it with a, a cap on, um, a number cap on how many dogs we import. Um, yeah. Is that, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I'm not against dogs being imported as such, you know, at all. Um, certainly some people go over, overseas and fall in love with the dog and want to bring that dog home. Uh, it's just that, yes, there aren't enough homes for the dogs that we have here either and how do you deal with that you know how do the rescues deal with that situation too what happens with the people who have taken in a dog that they can't cope with and, and who isn't coping with them and there isn't a rescue space available you know it, it is worrying unfortunately um in a lot of these places where dogs are being imported from, so Eastern Europe in particular, but also Spain is another area where a lot of dogs are brought over, Greece as well, um, is that there aren't any homes available in the home countries for them. So with the dogs who've maybe been born in a home and then thrown out or the mother's been thrown out because she's pregnant, which often happens, then... Um, there's nowhere for those pups to go and they lead miserable lives you know lots of them die on the streets and they starve and there's a lot of animal cruelty goes on as well so it's it's a very difficult situation because there isn't anywhere those dogs can be homed which is why i think ultimately the spain neuter programs are the best because that saves all of these future puppies from leading miserable lives and you know, so I think I think really it's the only way ahead. If someone is listening to this and they're interested in rescuing a, a dog from abroad, is there, I mean, what avenue would you send them down in terms of rescues and, and kind of reputable organisations that, that do with this kind of thing? I would say if you're going to import a dog, if you're going to adopt a dog that's going to be imported, then please, please go to a reputable rescue. Um, don't just... Um, go on Facebook and think oh that dog is so beautiful and looks so sad I'll be able to make life really good for him or her which is what happens a lot of the time um, go to a rescue a lot of there are a lot of really good rescues who bring dogs over not in large numbers but the dogs who they think can be homed um, so make sure that there is a UK based rescue involved so that you have rescue backup so that you can get any information that they have bearing in mind that um, with the overseas shelters and rescues they often don't really have any information I know in one case um, someone I know had adopted a dog who she'd fallen in love with online um, the dog was sent to her they'd said um, that she was a female very shy um, in fact when the dog arrived he was male and was so terrified that 
nobody had been able to get near him to actually find out what gender he was. Wow. So, you know, make sure that you don't just fall in love with a photo because you really don't know what you're getting yourself in for. And I have heard some absolute horror stories. Having said that, I've heard some really happy ones as well. So, you know, I have to kind of balance it out, really. But please go through a UK-based rescue. Um, there's quite a few who are involved in importing small numbers of dogs. And it means that if you need help, then they're able to help you. They can step in. They can either give you behavior advice or they can... Um, put you in touch with somebody with a professional who uses positive methods who will help you with the dog um, or they'll put you in touch with other fosterers or adopters who've been through similar issues so that you can kind of call on their experience as well the I mean we've spoken a lot about uh, rescues from European countries how do you feel about dogs um, that are imported from Ireland because I've seen a lot of that going on more and more recently with the pounds in Ireland obviously um, working on more of a kind of uh, you know they euthanize dogs uh, after a much shorter period than we do in this country how do you feel about importing yeah, dogs from Ireland? Yeah well a lot of our greyhounds over here have come from Ireland originally and certainly all three of my adopted greyhounds were Irish dogs um, who were then sent over. Um, there's far more Irish greyhounds than there are UK ones, UK-born ones. Um, of course, it's changing now because um, they, they, there are far more restrictions on importation and Ireland has been included in that. But also it's important to bear in mind that with a lot of the dogs are coming in from Ireland, especially the puppies, they're actually coming from Eastern Europe rather than being born in Ireland. There's, um, Ireland is used as a kind of stop-off place where a lot of dogs get shipped over there from Eastern Europe and then they're sold on from Ireland um, in, in a kind of puppy farm situation. Wow. Mm. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's really quite shocking. So think about where the dog's coming from you know if if with greyhounds you know what the background is going to be you know that they've been born into racing kennels and or, or that you know they've been born and moved very quickly into racing kennels you know what the background is you know that they won't have had any experience of living in a home um, but having said that they adjust amazingly quickly you know I fostered quite a few greyhounds I adopted three elderly ones um, one who had never lived in a home and she was coming up for 10 when she came to me. She was an extreme cruelty case from Ireland, which actually classed as one of the worst cruelty cases to come over from there, from that particular rescue. Um, and just settled in as if she'd always lived in a home, you know, really did well. So that's quite a different situation. And greyhounds are very easygoing dogs. They tend to settle pretty well wherever they are. Um, but with puppies consider very carefully if that pup's coming from Ireland uh, where it's actually come from originally because you know it is a kind of halfway house for a lot of Eastern European puppy farm dogs yeah that's really interesting I've never heard of that so uh, yeah that's really well it's not cool but it's, it's you know it's interesting to hear we were talking a minute ago about uh, reputable rescue organizations obviously you also run your own education um for trainers and and such can you tell us a little bit about that because that sounds really interesting yeah sure um i run the international school for canine psychology and behavior uh, or the iscp as it's much more easily known um i'm principal of the iscp i founded it um, almost five years ago now after two years of working to write the course book um it's a very extensive 188 page course book um, and going through all the procedures for the school to be approved globally by different organizations um, and we teach dog psychology and behavior um, it's online courses which means that we have students from all over the world um, I think all over the UK um, America Canada Northern and Southern Ireland um, Spain Portugal Cyprus um, Holland, Sweden, India, Hong Kong, and 
and Australia and Iran as well and Chile. So, you know, we've got students from all over the world and it's, I love the organisation. I must admit, you know, I know I set up this school originally, but it's, it's, one of my big passions in life you know I really enjoy the work I love teaching as I said to you before we started recording I spent all day yeah. my coursework today because um, it's a bank holiday and a lot of my students tend to work really hard they've got time off over the holidays and so they're all submitting coursework so I've had this massive coursework today and two students who are about to get their intermediate certificates which is great so, yes, yeah, so we teach all different aspects of behaviour and dog psychology. Um, there's a lot of people involved from all around the world. We have affiliates as well who are experts in various um, aspects of dog behaviour um, and welfare who are very involved in the school. We have a private Facebook group for students and graduates and um, so there's a lot of very, very active discussions people might share case histories of dogs that they're working with. I share all the latest scientific research. Our scientists um, within the school also share any scientific research they've come across. Um, I, I get a sort of daily email bulletin from scientists that includes the latest research in dog behavior. So it means that I get to read it first which is very exciting and then I can pass it on to the students um, so there's a lot of discussion goes on on there it's very supportive environment we work very much along the principles of positive reinforcement for people as well as for dogs obviously, oh, great. <laughs> obviously great. It's, it's all positive methods that we're using it's all force free um, and we also have a monthly webinar that um, quite often it's me giving a talk um, but Sometimes other people will come in. So, for instance, I gave a talk last Sunday um, that was just for our our students and graduates on um, the brain and fear, um, how fear affects the brain and the neuroscience of fear. And um, um, our our neuroscientist expert, Georgina, kind of came in and and she made sure that I simplified it enough so that everybody would be able to understand what I was talking about and then relate it in with behaviour and actually how to work with that. Um, But we also have webinars on um, subjects like how to work with the people, um, emotional intelligence in dogs and in humans, which is something that I find fascinating um, and that I've studied intensively and gain qualifications in, um, how to to help people um, understand their dogs because ultimately we don't just go in to work with a dog when we have a behaviour case. We go in and we're actually working with the people. So you have to understand how to get the person on board, how to get them feeling confident enough to be able to follow through on the work and motivate enough too once we've gone home because they're the ones who are left with the dog when we leave um, and all different well we have so many different subjects that you know in the webinars that it's really interesting and all of those are recorded um, as private webinars I share the link with the students and graduates and that means that um, Anybody can, you know, if somebody joined now, for instance, or our recent new students can just go to our list of webinars and they can go back and watch any of them at any time, which means that there's this massive um, amount of resources available, which is really, really useful. So, yeah, it's, I absolutely love the work. We've, we've got a group of tutors. There's um, five other tutors beside me. And so each person is allocated their own personal tutor when um, they sign up, when they enroll. Um, and they can either enroll for a certificate course, which is the basics, or uh, the certificate to go on to the intermediate and then the diploma, or they can enroll straight onto the diploma and they'll still get, if, if they're doing the diploma course, they'll still get their certificate and intermediate um, certificates as they move through the course and then their diploma at the end, which qualifies them as a behaviourist, basically. Is your course a course where you have deadlines or is it something where you submit your work kind of at your own rate? Yeah, there's no deadline uh, because some of our students are incredibly busy and don't get a huge amount of time on a regular basis to do coursework. So they can take two years if they want to. Um, 
Recently, we had our, well, our, our record-breaking student who graduated last week. Um, it was absolutely mind-blowing. She did the course in just over a month because she was doing it full-time. But generally, it takes six months to a year to complete the course. And there's no pressure on you. You can submit coursework whenever you like. You just send it into your tutor. Your tutor reads it, assesses it, comments on it and returns it and also returns it to me. I read all of the coursework, even with the students who aren't allocated to me. And, and I assess the thesis, I co-assess the thesis with their tutor. Um, so it's a system that works really well. Are your students mainly people that are hoping to become dog trainers or behaviourists? They're a real mixture. A lot of them are aiming to work professionally with dogs. Some already do and are doing the course of CPD. And there is actually a CPD version of the course. If somebody has already got a qualification in dog behaviour, then they can have um, a tailor-made CPD course where they only do the units that they need to cover that they haven't covered already in order to gain their diploma. And obviously, they only pay for the units that they do. They don't pay for the full course. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mixture of people from... We have some people who just want to understand their own dogs better but don't want to work professionally. Um, we have dog walkers, um, groomers... Um, behaviourists who are already qualified, um, some people who've already gained degrees and master's degrees in animal behaviour but who want to focus purely on dogs and so they do our diploma course in order to gain that extra information because in the um, animal behaviour degrees of course you're looking at lots of different species rather than just dogs so there's only one a sort of shortish section on dogs so that gives them the in-depth knowledge that they're looking for so it's a real mix of people and what are some of the subjects that are covered within the course oh my goodness um i know that so, there's probably yeah tons. there's there's actually well there's there's an introductory unit and then there's 17 other units. So it starts off with the, introdu the introductory unit is really um, about getting you to think about your relationship with dogs in your life and how that's affected you, how that's affected how you think and feel about dogs. So the coursework for the first unit is simply to write about dogs who have influenced you and why that's happened and what you've learned from them to get you into writing because we do have some students who haven't done any studying for 20, 30 years so the source can be quite intimidating at first. Um, then unit one is about evolution, um, the evolution of the dog and unit two is canine character and personality unit three is the physical needs of the dog unit four is the emotional needs unit five is intelligence unit six is dog communication the language of the dog which is crucial to all of us who not just work with dogs but who live with them who who are around dogs in any way understanding their communication is absolutely vital um and then throughout the other units, looking at what's normal, what isn't normal, you know, looking at the D word, the dominance word that, you know, there's so much um, kind of conflict over in the dog world and um, stages of life. Um, there's a, a large unit on emotional issues, different emotional issues and how to recognize them and work with them. Um, and there's a unit on medication and complementary therapies, on rescue dogs and old age and bereavement, which you know is something that we do need to understand thoroughly. And dogs and the law, which is vital. We have to understand dog law in order to work with dogs. You know, if we're going to be out there working with them, we really need to understand what the law is. And and then the final unit is the thesis. Um, so it's it's quite an in-depth course, but the feedback that we've had from it over, you know, over the years has just been wonderful. Everyone's very enthusiastic, which is really lovely. We don't have anybody who's dragging their feet going, oh, well, I think I'll just set it aside for a while. And um, it's really great to have that positive feedback from people and to have relationships with all of the students, you know, because it's a big, 
bunch of people, but everybody gets to know everybody else. It's a kind of friendly family type environment. And with the Facebook group especially, you can kind of develop relationships with people. So a lot of our students end up being friends, you know, off Facebook as well. Um, especially the ones who are kind of in particular areas, they can get together. And we do have, although the course is held online, um, we do have practical days several times a year that students can come to. And, and they work with me, um, sometimes with another graduate as well, um, working hands-on with dogs, doing the assessments, under supervision and talking to the carers so that's a lot of fun where are they hosted that sounds amazing yeah it depends um quite often they're in the bath area which is where okay. i'm based uh-huh. Um, but we will be spreading it out further. Um, we had one last year in Wales, but we'll probably have more kind of over more the eastern side of the country as well. So as time goes on, we'll be able to set up more. And we've, we've got tutors. One of our tutors is, well, two of our tutors actually is up in Scotland. Um, so there's plenty of range for where we can teach the courses. And of course, with the tutors as well, um, students can ask to go and observe to work with them to shadow them when they're working with a dog if they want to do practical work so so it, it, it does work very well do you also work as a trainer and behaviorist in bath or yeah uh, yeah, yeah you do as a behaviorist, oh, awesome. yeah, as a behaviorist rather than a, a trainer because i tend to take on the dogs with kind of emotional issues shall we say and um, so yes I do I'm not doing as much field work at the moment I'm still doing it but I'm not doing as much as I was because Sky my dog who's coming up to nine now my lurcher um, he's a deer hand mix and he's got a lot of health issues now um, he's got kidney disease liver disease thyroid disease um, and polyarthritis so it means that he actually needs quite a high level of care now and he can't be left for very long and I tend to spend at least three hours with people when I go out on a consultation so when I do consultations now I have to kind of arrange it that somebody's here to look after Sky, um, so I'm not doing quite as many as usual. But you know, hopefully he's he's pretty stable again at the moment, which is great. He's on quite a lot of medication, um, so that means that once there's care available for him, then I can get out more. But I absolutely love going out there and working with the dogs and the people. It's, it's fascinating every single time I think it's a job that you never stop learning you could never ever get bored with Um, it's endlessly fascinating and is that special I mean do you tend to specialize in in feral dogs or is there a particular issue that you you're you're particularly passionate about or is is it just you know what comes comes through whatever comes generally I work with I specialize in fear issues and of course, a lot of dogs do have fer- uh, fear issues. A lot of feral dogs, rather, have fear issues. Um, but generally, um, any behaviour issues, fear issues are my speciality, and I love working with fearful dogs because it is just so incredibly rewarding to see them gain confidence and learn to cope and adjust, and and to develop stronger bonds with their carers. It's absolutely beautiful to see that happen. You also have a relationship with the Pet Professionals Guild, is that right? Yes, yes, I'm on their education committee. Um, If people do your course, does that then enable them to become a full member of the Pet Professionals Guild? Yes. It does? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and they can also become a full member. Once they've gained their diploma, they can become a full member of the Association of Interdogs um, as well, which um, I've been a member of for nearly nine years now, but was made chair last year and um, um, did a lot of work with the ABTC, with Animal Behaviour Training Council. And Interdogs is the first behaviour organisation to actually be invited to join ABTC, um, which was very, very exciting because all all the members of ABTC, because it's just organisations and then 
your the members of the organizations become members but you can only join abtc as as an organization and um, so all of them are founder members so it was wonderful to go and meet everybody last year and um, then go through this process which you know it was about nine months of form filling basically and um, and i really pitied the three people who were assessing it because i had to send over i think it was over 130 pages um but it was accepted and they invited us to join, which means that members of Interdogs um, then get the option to join ABTC as individual members. They can be listed on the ABTC website. Um, they're um, classed as accredited animal behaviourists as well as having, say, their diploma or any other qualifications that they have, which is great. So our graduates all join Interdogs because then they can get involved with ABTC as well. I mean, what does this mean to a dog owner that's looking for a behaviourist? Because, of course, they hear all these letters, and I'm sure it's extremely confusing for them um, as to who, how to, how to know that their behaviourist is um, suitably qualified or knowledgeable to kind of do the job. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Because... At the moment, there's still no regulation, and it's something that I think is really needed. Um, if if a behaviourist is a, is a member of a reputable organisation like um, Interdogs, Pet Professional Guild, um, Association of Pet Dog Trainers, Association of Pet Behaviour Counsellors, you know, all of these organisations that are very well known for the work that they do and are also well known for um, positive methods, using positive methods, then that is the way to go. You know, that's the person that you need to get in contact with. Um, check what people's qualifications are as well. I think this is really important because a lot of people can, well, anybody really can say they're a behaviourist having done no study whatsoever who has just had a few dogs in their lives or you know, it's walking dogs or something. So at the moment, with there being no regulation, anyone can say they're a behaviourist. So it is always best to check. Um, and if you go through one of those organisations, then you know that that person is qualified, that they've done an enormous amount of study to become a member of the organisation, um, that they'll have gained a lot of expertise along the way and that they will be doing continue professional development study as well because certainly we all have to as members of these organizations you know with interdogs and abtc we our members have to do at least 40 hours cpd a year and really 40 hours isn't very much when you think about it so that is the bare minimum so to go through a reputable organization is a must you know rather than just um go by word of mouth where maybe someone says oh well that person down the road from me um as, as works with dogs sometimes so they might be able to help um one of the worst things i think that can happen and that sadly happens a lot is that people tend to take advice from anybody just because they've got a dog and they might may not know anything whatsoever about dog behavior and when you think of the amount of people who don't understand canine communication nonverbal communication um then you know it's something to be very aware of to make sure that they are a member of a reputable organization also with a lot of these organizations with um interdogs abtc apbc um APDT, there's all of these acronyms. <laughs> all these letters, yeah. um, But, you know, with most of these, you will be able to claim it off your insurance. So, you know, obviously there'll be um, a kind of, you'll have a sort of fee that you have to pay before you can claim back, as you do with vet insurance. But because all of the behaviourists are insured, because they're highly qualified, then it means that very often um, the vet can refer them and then the client can actually claim a large proportion of the feedback through their insurance company which is a huge bonus for them because obviously behavior work doesn't come cheap just like veterinary work doesn't because people have spent years studying and spent a lot of money on gaining that experience and expertise and then to kind of flip that last question a little bit what 
are the advantages to dog trainers and behaviorists to become members of these organizations, especially the Pet Professionals Guild? Oh, yeah, there's lots of advantages. I think primarily um, it means that anybody who goes to you will know that you know your stuff because you're a member of that organization. For them to accept you, um, you have to have a certain level of knowledge and expertise. Um, Also, Pet Professional Guild, for instance, because you mentioned them, they do an enormous amount of webinars. There's constant access to CPD, which is fantastic. I do a lot of their webinars, and they're on all different subjects by lots of experts in various fields. They're not just to do with dogs. They're to do with other other species as well. Um, but there's an, an awful lot to be gained. Plus, you connect up with other members. Um, if you're just out there in the field working with dogs, it can be quite isolating at times. And probably your friends who may not be as passionate about dogs as you are um, might get bored with you talking about dogs all the time. So, you know, it's great to actually have a really strong peer group of people who you can have discussions with, share information with. So there's a lot of benefits involved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember, I'm not a member of the pet professionals guild at the moment but i remember when i have been in the past you're absolutely right there was tons of webinars and i still get the emails now mm-hmm. um, about the webinars that are, g- are going on and it's it does look like a really good opportunity for anyone that's kind of curious about anything to do with dogs really because there's always a webinar and everything absolutely yes <laughs> so with your book um your most recent book. I noticed that it's available on paperback. Is it also available on Kindle or is it just paperback at the moment? Do you know, it should be available on Kindle. I must ask my publishers because they said it was coming out on Kindle as well. Um, so I'll check that with them because I haven't looked on Amazon to see whether it is. But certainly it's out as a paperback. Okay, so for people that have kind of listened to this and thought, as I have, bloody hell you know you've got a lot to share where can people find you and find kind of all of this stuff that we've been talking about for the last hour (laughs) well there's the website for the school where there's a lot of information on there and and if you go if you go onto that website and um you can actually find the you know meet the team which kind of bounces you into the tutors as well Um, so that's www.viscp.com so it's t-h-e-i-s-c-p.com so that's the school website there's also the dog welfare alliance um, which you know is basically I set that up um, to bring together dog professionals and dog guardians all around the world Um, any funds that's raised through the Dog Welfare Alliance through people subscribing to be to membership um, goes straight out to rescues for the dogs nobody gets paid Um, every single penny goes to help dogs in rescue sometimes it will be an individual dog sometimes it will be a rescue shelter where they're just desperate for funds to feed the dogs in their care. Um, so the website for that is www.dogwelfarealliance.com. Um, and generally, if you want to know a bit about me and my other books, Charlie's book is on there as well, of course, my Charlie book. Um, then my my books website that's got a little bit of dog stuff on as well, but it's mostly about my books, is www.tenzingdolmer.co.uk. Okay, brilliant. Well, it's been awesome to talk, talking to you, Lisa. Um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Uh, it'd be lovely. Thank you very much for inviting me, Nick. I've really enjoyed talking with you. No, it was, it was absolutely fascinating, and I've learned a lot. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, amazing. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank so you. Much. Well, take care. Brilliant. <laughs> All right, thank you. See Thanks, ya. bye.